Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you're all staying safe. We're going to keep you occupied this month with a bunch of stories by Fritz Leiber and a bonus episode of Strategies. But first, we want to tell you about this month's sponsor, the Thornclaw Manor Illustrated Poker Deck and Art Book by Steve Ellis. Two years ago, Steve created the first Thornclaw Monster Family Card Deck featuring portraits of the first 18 family members. But since then, the stories have expanded and more creatures have joined the family. So in this Kickstarter, he's funding a second deck with all new characters as well as pins and art prints with descriptions of the characters. These illustrations are beautiful. I love them. We'll link out to the Kickstarter and share some images on social media, but there are deep ones and nymphs and Cthulhu's. I'm going <laughs> to buy 54 different frames and put all of these all over the house <laughs> and a second deck to play with. I would recommend getting a third deck with which to murder as well. What? Oh my God. Speaking of which, I don't want to raise the stakes too much, but if Steve doesn't hit a certain number, I don't know if you know this, yeah. if that doesn't happen, he promised to murder one of our listeners. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Yep. Did you ask him to promise that? Uh, look, we're, we're, we're running all this advertising stuff on our own. I don't know much about it. I said, you know, I love the cards. Steve, let's just establish a CPM. That's cost per thousand impressions. Um, you know, the acronym's a little confusing because it stands for cost per mille. Mille meaning 1,000 in Latin. So I was like, let's just establish that rate for a spot at the top of the show. And then maybe you murder somebody as well. I don't know whether that's the best practice or not. It's just important that you buy these cards. I guess so. You seem to know a lot about it, actually. You can't prove that I do, but I know a lot about Steve Ellis. He's an artist who has been working in the fields of fantasy illustration, role-playing games, and comics for the past 25 years. You may know his work from Marvel Comics, mm -hmm. uh, Iron Man, yeah. DC Comics. He's painted for Magic the Gathering cards, done illustrations for Dungeons and Dragons, and he's reluctant to kill a randomly selected person. So that translates <laughs> to a lot of excitement for funding this project. You might be asking, among other things, who are the Thornclaws? <laughs> the Thornclaw family is a strange collection of creepy beautiful extra-dimensional monsters, demons, fairies, aliens, cryptids, and Lovecraftian horrors. They live in a world beside our own in the ancient and labyrinthine Thornclaw Manor. And maybe you can't go to a poker game right now, but it's certainly nice to have some games around the house to play with our co-quarantinis. Mm. Wait, is that a new drink? The quarantini? <laughs> One part vodka, seven parts Tiger King? <laughs> we should have been recording our calls lately because I think we've done three or four <laughs> shows on Tiger King. Well, it's a pleasant distraction from the news and, you know, from murder plots you think you may be overhearing. Just like these cars! <laughs> we'll link out to the Kickstarter in our show notes. Please support it. And now it's time for the show, gals and ghouls. It's the Liber King. Miss Millick wondered just what had happened to Mr. Ran. He kept making the strangest remarks when she took dictation. Just this morning, he had quickly turned around and asked, Have you ever seen a ghost, Miss Millick? And she had tittered nervously and replied, When I was a girl, there was a thing in white that used to come out of the closet in the attic bedroom where I slept there and moan. Of course, it was just my imagination. I was frightened of lots of things. And he had said, I don't mean that kind of ghost. I mean a ghost from the world today. With the soot of the factories on its face and the pounding of machinery in its soul. The kind that would haunt coal yards and slip around the night through deserted office buildings like this one. A real ghost. Not something out of books. And she hadn't known what to say. Gosh, I'm not sure what to say. Other than, I'm Chris Laggy. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And that was the first paragraph from Fritz Leiber's Smoke Ghost. Smoke Ghost is the scariest monster we've ever covered because it's so hard to say its name. <laughs> hey, look out for that Smoke Ghost. What would you say? Smogos or Smoke? No, Smoke Ghost. It's two words. Ah, it's too late. He's been devoured. Just as listeners will be devoured by the details of this story, 
here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. Last month was Four Draculas, and we ended with the Fritz Leiber story. Pfeiffer and I were like, man, I love this Leiber. <laughs> Let's have some more. Get ready, listeners. April is a Fritz Blitz. It's Fritz Creek here in April. All the Belibers and Leiberpunk fans are finally getting their own <laughs> month. This podcast is finally on the Fritz. Oh, golly. Nobody spits Fritz hits like today's reader. It's Mike Mason, ladies and gentlemen. He is the Call of Cthulhu creative director over at Chaosium. Good old Mike Mason. I love Chaosium. What do they have going on over there right now? Alone Against the Frost, Gateways to Terror, Deadlight, and Other Dark Turns. Also, check out his Twitch game, The Dead of Winter, running on Twitch Tuesdays, 8 p.m. GMT, on the Chaosium channel, then on Chaosium's YouTube thereafter. Well, it's great to have Mike on. We honestly wouldn't be doing this show without the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Speaking of which, we are coming up on our 500th episode next month. Lots and lots of <laughs> listeners have suggested, hey, now that it's 10 years later, why don't you go back to some of these original Lovecraft stories and do a reread? See if mm-hmm. your perspective's changed at all or what you think of those stories 10 years later. And we finally decided, yeah, let's do that. Why not? So next month, we're going to be uh, picking a few stories from the original run. We're going to re-listen to those shows. And then uh, we're probably going to link in some way to another form of media. Like, I think we'll definitely do The Color Out of Space so we can talk about that new Richard Stanley movie. That's right. So that's sort of how we're going to attack it. Back to throwing tantrums about the Fritz. We were going to do the Turn of the Screw this month. Uh Had it all laid out and ready to go. But I started reading the first chapter and I was just like, I can't do this. I just can't do a cold Christmas ghost story where it's all, you know. And then after 35 pages of muffled bumping, (laughs) a wind whipped past my mustache. (laughs) Couldn't do it. So you said let's do more Liber. Chris, yeah. and I thought that that was an excellent suggestion. So this story, Smoke Ghost, is maybe his most anthologized work. So you picked this one. I did. And given what I've said, it's a relief. Right there in the opening paragraph, it says, I don't mean that kind of ghost. I mean a ghost from the world of today. So uh, we're going to be moving out of those old dusty drawing rooms and mustache-breezing phantoms and into the 20th <laughs> century. Uh, Ramsey Campbell said this about the story. He said, Fritz Leiber was the father of modern supernatural horror fiction and its greatest master. I'll stake my reputation on the belief that once Smoke Ghost was published, the field could never be the same again. Wow. I think just how Dracula brought moldering gothic horror to modern 1800s England, and then Kate and Leopold brought 1800s <laughs> England to the modern 21st century. <laughs> this story continues the, uh, the, the relay race of great fiction, and it's bringing old horrors to a new world, the industrial mechanized 20th century. And it's pioneering in that regard, as Ramsey said. This story was actually published in the October 1941 issue of Unknown Worlds, right before Mm -hmm. the attack on Pearl Harbor and America's entrance into the Second World War. So that's important context for this, I think. It's rooted very firmly in the... uh, I'm going on a little long here, so I'll stop with this thought. The story is rooted in the Industrial Revolution of the early 1900s, cities becoming these Mordor-like, gray, suit-covered steel factory towns. Uh, people becoming links in an assembly line chain. No longer do you have a trade. You know, you're a you're a hyper-specialized cog in the machine. You do one mm-hmm. thing instead of a lot within one category. The Industrial Revolution is producing wonders, but in the midst of it, one wonders how we'll all pay for this. And uh, yes, there's the pollution, there's the dehumanization, but there's a deeper horror coming, especially at the writing of this story. And of course, with the war, the bombing, the death camps, the eventual atomic massacres, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bigger bill coming this and i think the titular smoke ghost is sort of the the server that's going to deliver that bill (laughs) 
I think. So uh, let's get into the story. Our story begins with a nervous Mr. Catesby Ran giving dictation to a secretary, Miss Millick. He asks her if she's ever seen a ghost, not one of those old-fashioned ghosts, but one of the modern ghosts. A smoky composite face with the hungry anxiety of the unemployed, the neurotic restlessness of the person without purpose, the jerky tension of the high-pressure metropolitan worker, the uneasy resentment of the striker, the callous opportunism of the scab, the aggressive whine of the panhandler, the inhibited terror of the bomb civilian, and a thousand other twisted emotional patterns, each one overlying and yet blending with the other, like a pile of semi-transparent masks. Like a pile of semi-transparent masks. How is that for a beautiful simile? Mm. I could just yeah. see it. And those are all the layers of this ghost. We should use a bonus episode to record some sketches sometime. Uh, Heather and I used to do this one at Second City where she was a 1940s secretary taking dictation. Uh-huh. And, I, and I was this clueless executive dictating my diary. So oh, go, yeah, yeah. Dear diary, I think I'm in love with my secretary. And she'd say, sir, I'm married. And I'd say, have you been reading my diary? <laughs> and that's it. That was the only joke in it. But I thought it was so funny. Anyway, the secretary <laughs> is the clueless one here. Uh, she's tittering, which is kind of a vacuous sounding verb. And it says, Miss Millick wondered whether he mightn't be seeking some sort of sympathy from her. Of course, Mr. Rand was married and had a little child, but that didn't prevent her from having daydreams. The daydreams were not very exciting. Still, they helped fill up her mind. Mm-hmm. That was interesting because is it implying that he's married, but she's still kind of fantasizing like maybe they'd hook up? But yeah. because she's got such boring daydreams, really, it's just him talking to her about some problems he's having or like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think maybe she thinks about being married to him or kissing him or something like right. that. And that's the extent of it. It's no elaborate yeah, yeah, fantasy. Yeah. It's just these really surface daydreams and i think the important bit of writing there is it says they helped fill up her mind mm-hmm. which implies that it's empty and that characterization is important for later and mr ran here he tries to impress what he means on her he says this ghost would grow out of the real world it would reflect all the tangled sordid vicious things all the loose ends and it would be very grimy i don't think it would seem white or wispy or favorite graveyards it wouldn't moan but it would mutter unintelligibly and twitch at your sleeve like a sick, surly ape. Mr. Ran is just freaking Miss Millick out with this kind of talk that he's having. He's normally not like this. Something has wigged him out, and he asks her, what would such a thing want from a person, Miss Millick? Sacrifice, worship, or just fear? What could you do to stop it from troubling you? And Millick, she just giggles nervously, not knowing how to answer these insane questions that are being thrown at her. He then says, of course, Being immaterial, it couldn't hurt you physically at first. You'd have to be particularly sensitive even to see it or be aware of it at all. But it would begin to influence your actions. Maybe you do this, stop you from doing that. Although only a projection, it would gradually get its hooks into the world of things as they are. It might even get control of suitably vacuous minds. Then it could hurt whomever it wanted. Quite a setup here that Fritz is pulling off. He just laid down the rules for this... (laughs) ghost it's that very typical thing where the main character for some reason imagines or intuits what the rules mm-hmm. of the specter might be so this thing can get control of suitably vacuous minds and what do we have right here but a secretary with a vacuous mind your stupid minds stupid <laughs> stupid minds uh, but we also need somebody who's particularly sensitive which is mentioned in his rules here mm-hmm. to perhaps notice the ghost and there'll be more on that shortly she just responds with well there's no such thing as ghost right to which he gets a bit perturbed and agrees with her. Of course, there's no such thing as ghosts. That's ridiculous. But then she points out that his desk is a bit sooty. So after she leaves, he quickly pulls out a rag and cleans it off. 
He looks out of his office window over a sea of roofs, and he tells himself he must be having mental problems. Yet the soot is real, and he thinks it's good that he's seeing a psychotherapist. He can't bear thinking about going onto the elevated train that night. And what is he talking about here? We find out in a flashback. When he was on the L coming home after work, there were a bunch of rooftops he would see out of the window of his crowded train. And I could relate to this particular aspect of city commuting when you ride the train and see the same structures day in and day out, particularly in Chicago. The, mm-hmm. You know, those brick buildings with fire escapes and graffiti, they're kind of worn down by time and soot and winter weather. And you wonder about the lives of the people in these places day in, day out. And because you see it so repetitively, you also start to notice any little changes. One night, coming home from work, he noticed something. On a rooftop maybe three roofs away, he saw a black sack lying on top of one of them. The next night, he noticed the sack again, but it was on the second roof away and not the third. And he had the impression that it was filled with coal dust, but he doesn't know why he thought that. It doesn't really make any sense. Like, why would there be a bag full of coal dust? The following night, he saw it blown up against a ventilator, which, again, is not possible if it was full of something heavy like coal dust, so he thinks maybe it's full of leaves. The next night, he's filled with dread, anticipating that this sack is going to be closer to the train because it's, you know, slowly creeping up. And he's right. It's on the closest roof to the L. The story is so cool because it uses a few classic tropes, but it modernizes them. The pursuing thing that just keeps getting closer feels Mm -hmm. like we've had that a lot except here it's not following at the end of a cobblestone alley it's leaping across rooftops it's viewed from a moving train it's fast it's dynamic the next night the sack was gone he felt relief at this but he felt stupid for letting it get to him but as he walked home he wondered was the sack really gone he had a vague memory of a trail of black soot going from the spot he last saw it to the lip of the building where he couldn't see he gets this image in his mind of a black monster thing hiding behind the lip of the building Mm -hmm. right on that wall just waiting for him. The next time on the car, he tried to not look, but he felt stupid for not looking. Like, why am I not looking? There's nothing to not look at. So then he looked and he saw, or he thinks he saw, a dark head silhouetted that quickly disappeared. But did he see it? Well, that's scary enough, but his other senses were being assaulted as well. It says, it was on the same day too that he became aware of a growing antipathy to grime and soot. Everything he touched seemed gritty and he found himself mopping and wiping at his desk like an old lady with a morbid fear of germs. So he wondered, was this soot always there? And it's just now he's noticing it, that things are dirty? Because he lives in a city. Is it increasing or am I only, am I getting more sensitive to it? He worried about the next time he was going to take the train, that something, some creature coming up against the window maybe, or pressing its horrible face up against the glass. That sudden, distorted face of sacking and coal dust the boneless paw which waved back and forth unmistakably in his direction as if reminding him of a future appointment. An unmentionable face pressed close against the window, smearing it with wet coal dust, huge paws fumbling sloppily at the glass. His wife is worried about him and he tried to play it off. He decided he was going to see a psychiatrist. This worried him as well because he knew it was going to bring up some of his past that he didn't want to think about. Aha, mysterious past. But he had hoped that this doctor would just tell him that all the things he's experiencing were just nerves and give him some kind of prescription and then he would be fine. Now we're in the present again and Rand realizes that he's been staring out the window for a long time. Everyone else has gone home and he sees a black shape on one of the rooftops move from a rooftop under a giant water tank. And this freaks him out sufficiently enough that he hurries out of the office, trying not to panic, 
and praying that the psychiatrist would be able to help him. We break into him talking with his therapist. He explains that when he was a young child, he was a sensory prodigy. He could see through walls, distant places, play ping pong blindfolded, find buried things. Again, you've got this classic horror trope, the psychic character that's uh, especially sensitive. Sensitive or psychic, you know, they can, they're open to the supernatural in a way that others aren't, a la Haunting of Hill House or something mm-hmm. like that. Which was a left turn I didn't expect this to take, actually. No. There's many left turns in the story that uh, I, I don't anticipate. You know, one thing that is more modern about this story, having been written in the 40s, is that things written before this, if it's a spook story, there's <laughs> there's some kind of supernatural thing that happens and then the whole story is about that, whereas this has a few things going on. Yes. And I think that that has to do with familiarity with the genre, too, in, in, in terms of what the readers are willing to accept. So it's right. not so crazy that there would be a ghost. So they're going to be willing to accept that. So you got to up it a little bit. Not only is there a ghost, but there's a psychic as well. You know, he's able to add in these other factors because the crazy world is a little more normal. So the doctor casually asks him if he could do these things that supposedly he could. And he says, I don't know. I I don't suppose so. But it turns out his mom was super into his psychic powers. So he believed at the time. Yeah, she was sort of she believed in his powers or said she believed in his powers and then used it as a money making. Yeah, basically. She believed in it enough that he thought, oh, I do have these powers, and why wouldn't he? Now, this is something that I think is interesting, because I'm not sure if it actually plays out, but his mother also pushed him to try and talk to dead people, but that was something that he could never do. Yeah, and it's interesting that the psychic ability isn't presented as something the character does now, which I think is for a number of, of reasons, but I think it's also treating this trope in industrial terms. Like, he did it when he was little, and it was commodified, i.e. he was like child labor. Mm. You know, <laughs> he yeah. was like post-industrial child labor. And his mother tried to get even more out of him in terms of productivity. You know, OK, we're doing all right with you being able to see through things. But maybe we can diversify into seeing dead people. Could we do that? <laughs> we're leaving money on the table here, kid. Get to work, little guy. Up that chimney. The therapist asks if he ever had anyone with any scientific background explore his ability. Brian says, yes. Two young psychologists from the university came to check him out. He remembers that they thought that he was a joke at first, but quickly became believers. They brought him to the university to demonstrate his abilities to the higher-ups, but when it came time, he choked. Rand couldn't do any of the things that he normally could do, so he just made stuff up. The faculty at the university thought that the whole thing was a sham, and those two young psychologists got in a lot of hot water over it. Now, from that day on, he never exhibited any trace of his powers. His mom flipped out about it. She tried to sue the university, blaming them for somehow taking away his powers. But then his father divorced his mother and took custody of young Ran. Now, his dad tried to give him a normal life, and he went into business school and then got into advertising. I'm sorry, just kind of laughing because I don't think that they sued him. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think they sued the university for taking away his powers. I think it was for defaming probably them with this test so that they could no longer make an income. I, th- I thought that that was her... Could be yes. Could be that yes, but... It, I, but I know. think you can make a case that they... They used this study to say that what we're doing is not real and therefore we can't make money anymore. And you'd have a case, but I don't know if you can sue and say they took our powers away because does that mean, like, how does that case go? Hey, look, they don't specify what the case is in the story. So I think she definitely tried to sue them for taking away his powers. And she thinks, (laughs) hold on, hear me out. She thinks that the two have powers together now. So they both have got superpowers. And then when they touch rings together they one can turn into an animal and, and one what? can turn into some water <gasps> thing oh those were the that's all implied the i see okay, that's in the cool. subtext it's not in there explicitly but it's definitely in the subtext 
And of course, that led to the landmark case of Zan and Jaina versus the state of Arizona that we're familiar with. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, why do you think he choked? Why do you think he choked when he was put up to the, you know, the double blind experiment with these scientists? Or actually, no, he didn't choke with the scientists. The what when they presented their findings, he choked later, right? Yeah, yeah. For the higher and, ups, but why, why do you think that happened? I don't know. I would guess there's some kind of greater pressure that maybe the, these guys were more skeptical and they're older and mm-hmm. maybe more authoritative and so that might have just been too much pressure for him yeah that's my guess or from a narrative standpoint obviously he had to lose his powers because if he was living a life of a superpower dude it would be much different than what it is now right right oh no absolutely absolutely i just i thought it was really interesting because I thought, well, maybe he didn't ever have the powers, but because he was a little kid, he just believed it. And your memory is so weird about things that happened when you were young. They had two young researchers who wanted to believe it, so they found the results they were looking for. I mean, Mm -hmm. willingly or not, they became part of the narrative. And then the higher-ups, the James Randi, showed up and totally shut it down. You know, he didn't choke. It actually just, he never had the ability. I thought might be be the case. Or he does have the ability that he is somewhat sensitive Mm-hmm. But it, he doesn't exist in a world where psychic phenomena is real or it's not. He's just on a kind of a spectrum where it's like he's a little more sensitive. Is right. he psychic? No. But when you try yeah. to force it in that direction, that's what made him choke. So it's like yeah. he has an ability. It's just not going to produce these mundane effects that you guys are looking for. I can't do magic tricks with it. Could be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's plausible. Again, it, this is just kind of glanced over in the story. It's not. It is, but I thought it was point. written really cleverly that we can believe that he really is a psychic or not. So Rand asks the shrink if he thinks that this experience as a child has something to do with his current condition. And just then the doctor gets a strange look on his face and Rand realizes he's looking at something behind him out the window. The psychologist springs to his feet and he throws up the window. The doctor looks relieved and he explains that he saw someone looking in, a, a peeping Tom. To which Rand's response is, a Negro? Why does he jump to that? Is that like a common stereotype? No, period or something? no, no, no. You know, it's funny because of the context in the context of the racist authors that we cover a lot of the time. Yeah. It's tempting to go. I, and I thought, too, I was like, wait a minute, what? But I think it's just a coloring effect. It's like what he's been seeing looks like a sooty ghost. So it looks almost like a blackface minstrel. And he does say that. He says it, it looked like a white man in blackface because it had right. no color. It had no color at all. It was black like soot. Dead black is the word that he used. He's saying, did it look like that? Like he's, he's not even implying in any way, shape, or form that it was a Negro at the window or that Negroes right. are peeping Toms or anything like that. I think he's just trying to go, are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? So it, right. it's actually, there's I don't think there's anything racist going on. Good. It's just a little more common in the 1940s to throw that word out. Like, uh, you know, yeah, because of course, You're not that makes that. me, it makes my hair stand on end when that, when we get that stuff in our stories oh here. Oh my God, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But luckily this time, I think it really was just him going. Right. Are you seeing the same? I need to confirm that you're seeing the same thing I'm seeing. And it, yes. and it looks like a guy in blackface. It looks like Justin Trudeau coming through the window. <laughs> <laughs> so when uh, Rand goes over to take a look, he sees that there are smudges on the glass. Smutty smudges, I assume. Mm-hmm. And at that, Rand says, I've got to go. And he leaps. This is the thing we talked about back in January about Enoch. And again, in our comments show covering that, we've hit the point in this story where we're wondering, is this all in his mind? But the story did just choose a lane. Somebody else has seen it. This is a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. So remember, because I was saying they were like, no, no, no. Enoch chose a lane pretty firmly at one point because another character saw the little monster (laughs) or dealt with the little monster. So the same thing's happening here. And so I am no longer going to say this could all be. (laughs) 
<laughs> there no. is a smoke ghost. There is definitely a smoke ghost going on here because we get more proof later on. Mm-hmm. So he goes back to the office. He d- doesn't want his wife or his child to see what he's been seeing. Or he doesn't want this thing to come for them. Yeah. So if the psychologist saw it, then it has to be really happening. The elevator guy takes him up to his office, commenting on the late night working. He's going to just stay there all night, I guess, so that he doesn't attract the thing to his family. He goes to his window in, in his office and he looks out. He thinks about what he said to Miss Malik earlier. What would such a thing want from a person? Sacrifices, worship, or just fear? What could you do to stop it from troubling you? His wife calls, and she asks, why are you at work? She's worried. She says their son saw something that upset him. He kept going to the window saying, black man, black man. She wants him to come right away, and he says he will. Now he knows staying away isn't going to do anything. So he goes to the elevator to call it up, but he looks down the shaft and he sees something in the dark. From the deep shadows three floors below, the sacking face pressed against the iron grill work. It started up the stair at a shocking, swift, shambling gait, vanishing temporarily from sight as it swung into the second corridor below. Oh no, it's caught up with him. Was it at his home as well as here, or was that Smoke Ghost Jr.? <laughs> like a sidekick of some kind. <laughs> Smoke Ghost in the human air filter. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, because he's got like opposite powers. Yeah, I get it. Smoke Ghost and the Burning Man. Nobody's burning, though, so that's really... Well, no, he's actually... He got struck by lightning, and he has electrical powers, but it happened when he was at Burning Man, so that... Oh, I see, okay. He just kept the name, yeah. It gets kind of confusing. It does get confusing. No, but really, was he in both places at once, or does it matter, or why was it... I think it's one thing. I think it's one, and it can teleport. It can go from place to place. It doesn't have to be in any one location. So he hauls the ass back to his office, he locks the door, and he can hear the cage door on the elevator open. So he looks out, and he sees it's Miss Millick. She says that she just came in to do a little typing after she was at the movies. She's worried about Ran. He looks very unwell. He tells her that he's leaving, but she wants him to stay because he looks sick. And he notices that she must have stepped in some mud because there are black prints from her shoes. Uh-oh. He keeps trying to leave, but Miss Millick stops him, tries to get him to take some medicine she, that she has on her, and then he remembers what he said earlier. It couldn't hurt you physically at first. Gradually, it gets its hooks into the world, might even get control of suitably vacuous minds. Then it could hurt whomever it wanted. He learned the truth from the lore that he made up in his own mind at the beginning of the story. <laughs> Remember well, when I speculated idly that vampires could be killed by mixing a little fruit punch into their bathwater? Turns out I was exactly right. <laughs> well, this is what's different about this guy is that he is psychic. Yes, I know. And so, I think that that's why he can see this thing. Yeah, too, he so. intuited that, that that's what this thing was and how it worked and it's, its abilities. It's true. She calls down to the elevator operator to tell him that Rand's going to stay. She's starting to become more sinister at this point. She's blocking the door. And at that point, he almost screams. And she says that he's acting crazy. So she's almost gaslighting him a bit here. Mr. Ran, you're acting as if you were crazy. You must lie down for a little while. Here, I'll help you off with your coat. It's very creepy. Mm-hmm. He breaks past her and he goes up the stairs to the roof. She follows him up and he gets to the edge of the roof, looking down over the city. He turns around and he looks in the doorway, but it's not Millick anymore. The thing was in the doorway. The voice was no longer solicitous, but ironically playful. Each sentence ending with a titter. Why, Mr. Rand, why have you come up here? We're all alone. Just think, I might push you off. The thing came slowly toward him. He moved backward until his heels touched the low parapet. Without knowing why or what he was going to do, he dropped to his knees. The face he dared not look at came nearer. A focus for the worst in the world. A gathering point for poisons from everywhere. Then the lucidity of terror took possession of his mind, and the words formed on his lips. I will obey you. 
You are my God, he said. You have supreme power over man and his animals and his machines. You rule this city and all others. I recognize that. Again the titter, closer. Why, Mr. Ran, you never talked like this before. Do you mean it? The world is yours to do as you will, save or tear to pieces, he answered fawningly, as the words automatically fitted themselves into vaguely liturgical patterns. I recognize that. I will praise. I will sacrifice. In smoke and sudden flame, I will worship you forever. The voice did not answer. He looked up. There was only Miss Millick, deathly pale and swaying drunkenly. Her eyes were closed. He caught her as she wobbled towards him. His knees gave way under the added weight and they sank down together on the edge of the roof. Whoa, I did not see that coming. Mm-mm. That was super cool. Like he just became a cultist. Yeah. That's so nutty. Yeah, it's a cra- it's he took action in a way I did not no. see coming at all. Even though he introduced it way back in the beginning of the story. He submitted to this thing. And he said, what do you think one of these things would want? You think it would want you to submit? And I thought that was idle chatter, but it wasn't. He did it no. and it worked. <laughs> he says, I will praise, I will sacrifice. Yeah. And smoke and soot and flame, I will worship you forever. Yep, yep, yep. Wow, man, that is awesome. I mean, it's an option we don't get to see explored very often, but it no. is true that, you know, him being particularly sensitive, he is in a place where he can see this thing. It yeah. implies everybody else, the things around, but nobody else has the ability to see it. And if you take that into a more mundane setting, you know, it's kind of like when you see through somebody. I see that you're a criminal. Mm-hmm. I see that you're up to bad things. You have two choices. From that monstrous person's perspective, you can fall in line or you can get put out of the picture, right? Right. So yeah. that's the choice he's got to make right here. This smoke wow. ghost means business. It's threatening his family. Yeah. So he's either got to submit to it. I'm going to do your bidding. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to like let you be the boss or the thing's probably going to cut him out. So wow. this was the right decision to make. Well, who knows what kind of sacrifice it's going to ask him to make. Yeah. Once you submit, we actually don't know what this thing wants. So yeah. mm, might have been a bad decision at the same time. Now, Miss Millick comes to, and she doesn't know where she is. She thinks she had some kind of fainting spell, and he allows her to believe that. Don't for a second go thinking you were possessed by a smoke ghost now. <laughs> he helps her down, and she points out that he has a black smudge on his forehead. She takes out a hanky and goes to wipe it away, but she begins to feel lightheaded again. Later, riding home in an empty, elevated car, he wondered how long he would be safe from the thing. It was a purely practical problem. He had no way of knowing. But instinct told him he had satisfied the brute for some time. Would it want more when it came again? Time enough to answer that question when it arose. It might be hard, he realized, to keep out of an insane asylum. With Helen and Ronnie to protect as well as himself, he would have to be careful and tight-lipped. He began to speculate as to how many of the men and women had seen the thing, or things like it. The elevator slowed and lurched in a familiar fashion. He looked at the roofs again, near the curve. They seemed very ordinary, as if what made them impressive had gone away for a while. Man. Mm, that's the end of the story. Good job, Liber. Absolutely. Uh, because of his ability to see through things, he could see that ghost. And, you know, that's the other thing, too. When you see through something, it sees you. Mm -hmm. The thing definitely saw him, so he had to make that supplication. 
That's just something that never would have occurred to me at all. It's either you fight it or you die. Like that's, well, you fight it and die probably is what would happen. Right. But what could he have possibly done to fight this? Who knows? I guess nothing. Exactly. So it speaks a little bit to the complicity that we all feel in a mechanized age, right? Mm. Like I, there, there's something rotten going on. We're poisoning the air. We're poisoning the planet, right? We're doing these things. It gives us, it gives us a lot in our daily life. But we know that the price is coming. Yet, what can any one of us do? So you just kind of supplicate. I don't know. It's got a lot of those things yeah. <laughs> going on. I mean, I think that's why the ghost represents, as he says, all of the industrial misery that's being visited upon us by by technology. Wow, yeah. I mean, I think we're looking at something similar in the information slash internet age uh, where there might be something horrific and twisted at the core of all of this internet stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, we get glimpses into it when you look at the comment section of something. You go, what is this rotten (laughs) stuff swirling at the core of this or Twitter or whatever? But election interference and the debasement of media as in we don't know what's real and what's not anymore. I mean, these things are having serious consequences in political and social structures. So it's similar to the industrial industrialization in the 20th century I think in the present there's mm. some kind of ghost in the internet still that we have to reckon with I think oh boy we could write we could be right at that Pearl Harbor moment that Liber was at too culturally oh, we don't know <laughs> where the great reckoning is yet to come I'm not sure but this is an effective horror story because it made me think about all that stuff in a way yeah. that a, a, a breezy mustache would not so absolutely I'm, I'm a Liber. <laughs> so what's next well, I don't know. You tell me. I will tell you. We're gonna you're, do. You're the, in the. You're in the driver's seat for this month. We're gonna do the Terror from the Depths, which is okay. uh, one of his longer short stories, but it's very Lovecraftian. I think it even mentions some of uh, Lovecraft's creations within it. Uh, maybe Cthulhu. Cool. Maybe something else. I don't remember exactly, but I have yet to read it. From what little I've checked out of it, there seems to be a lot that goes on with it. So it will definitely take up two episodes worth, and then we're gonna finish out the month with his supposed like send-up of Lovecraft called To Arkham in the Stars. All right. Awesome. I'm so looking forward to that stuff. I think those stories are from a little earlier in his career than this one, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure. I guess we'll find out on those. Uh, speaking of uh, a terror from the depths, I want to thank our reader, a treasure from the depths. He's an amazing <laughs> guy. Mike Mason, thanks so much for being our reader today. Check out Mike Mason at the Chaosium's YouTube page. You can see some interviews that he's done recently as well as all the Twitch games that he runs he's an excellent gm i've got to play with him on a few occasions and he is a delight so go check him out there and also i'd like to thank some of our patrons i would too and i would like to start by personally thanking a longtime friend of the show ilker Usel. love you ilker thank, Aww, you. thank you so much man i'd like to thank patrick henley i'd like to thank gary daniel i'd like to thank aaron granite mr x thank you so much robin verho thank you very much nils thank you charles thank you james dawes thank you so much and i'd like to thank thomas pekarski we're going to be back with more liber in this month of putting on the fritz that's all we've got <laughs> i don't know i'm chad pfeiffer and i'm chris lackey and you've been listening to the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com and patreon hppodcraft.com ah!